0: Focused on the pressing and emerging needs in human resources and learning and talent development, this is Talent Champions with Diana Thomas, sponsored by Franklin Covey. Now, here is your host, Diana Thomas.
1: Welcome to another episode of Talent Champions. I'm Diana Thomas, and I'm honored to serve as your host. I'm so excited today to have two distinguished professors, David Allen and Brooks Holton. Our focus is on employee retention, and I know that's a very important topic for our talent champions. David and Brooks are co-authors of a recent Harvard Business Review article, Better Ways to Predict Who's Going to Quit. David's an Associate Dean for Graduate Programs and Professor of Management at Texas Christian University Neely School of Business. He's also the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Management and researches the flow of human capital into and out of organizations. Equally impressive, Brooks, Professor of Management and Senior Associate Dean at Georgetown University. He focuses on research into employee retention and, and has consulted with over 100 organizations. Welcome, David and Brooks. Thank you. Let's start with David. Can you share some insights on your background and how you got started?
0: So some years ago, I started a PhD in business with only a pretty vague notion that I wanted to study people at work. And pretty early in that process, I had an advisor who got me engaged in a research project that ultimately what we wound up looking at and demonstrating was that even when people are dissatisfied in the workplace, if they think that things are likely to get better, then that dissatisfaction doesn't really drive them to quit or search for other jobs. Where if uh, they have low hope that things are going to get better, uh, then it does. It drives them to search and look for other jobs. And after that, I was kind of hooked on this whole idea of studying uh, people's reactions in the workplace and, and whether they're likely to search for other jobs, take other jobs, or stay where they are. Uh, so I've been pursuing that research in a variety of ways for years, um, and then more recently got into a couple of these roles that you mentioned, like editing, uh, editing a journal and being associate dean at my university.
1: Great. Okay, Brooks, your turn. What's your background, and how did you end up in your current role?
2: I started life as an accountant and uh, spent a couple of years in a large consulting firm and then repented. I went to a PhD program at the University of Washington, uh, in part because some of the most interesting research in turnover or retention was taking place there. And uh, as I arrived, my advisors allowed me to jump in on a project, and they said, well, it's great that you're an accountant because we're studying data from the AICPA, and we'd really like to get your insights. And as we worked on that uh, first article, I found that it wasn't the accounting part that interested me, but really fundamentally understanding what causes people to leave. And then as I developed later my dissertation, answering the question, why do people stay? And it turns out that the answers to those questions are not mere opposites. In other words, some of the things that cause people to leave and the things that cause people to stay are independent. And so we uh, have developed over time, these two models of turnover, one, the unfolding model, and the second uh, theory of uh, retention, which is called job embeddedness. Hmm.
1: So interesting. So maybe let's start with just what do you think the current state of the field is when it comes to retention? And why is it so problematic?
0: Well, I'll take a stab at, uh, at two perspectives on that. Uh, one is, in some ways, the current state of the field is very strong. There's been a lot of research on why people leave and why people stay. And so we know a lot and we have some very strong theoretical perspectives. But when you ask why is it problematic, I would say a couple of reasons. Even though we know a lot, uh, it's still pretty challenging and we have pretty limited predictive power over who's going to leave, especially looking at the individual level. And there are also some limitations in the way that most organizations go about studying their retention issues. Uh, For example, relying on exit interviews has some significant limitations because you're only capturing information from the people who have already decided to leave, which only gives one side of the story. And the reliance on annual or semi-annual employee surveys also has limitations in terms of the types of data that you can collect and the fact that if you're only capturing the data a couple times a year at, at best in most places, it's really just a snapshot and you're missing an awful lot of information.
2: And I would add that we're really on the cusp of an exciting time. As David said, we have strong theory. I think we have lacked timely data as he mentioned with the exit interviews and surveys. And we see new technology emerging now, for example, employee pulsing data that will uh, enable employers to take the pulse of employees weekly with simple questions that can help them develop insights into the current mood. And so if there are organizational events that occur They can ask how people feel about those things and get a real-time response. They can as well look at new initiatives that they have put into place and see how people are responding to them again in real time. Moreover, there's a lot of publicly available data that can help uh, organizations better understand how things are going in the more macro environment. So we move up a level from the individual level and how does he or she feel now to what's happening in the broader market, whether that's uh, economy, unemployment rates in a region, housing costs, commute times. And so now the ability to aggregate across levels uh, is a tremendous step forward in methodology that helps us to explain more of the variance in turnover behavior.
1: Great information. And I would add from a practitioner's point of view, being very close to HR and learning leaders and talent leaders, over the last two years, when we've surveyed them in a variety of uh, places, Finding and retaining top talent continues to be one of their biggest challenges, especially when a marketplace exists like it does today, where it is harder to find talent and much harder when you have to turn that over or when people leave. So I think this topic is really relevant for our audience. So maybe give us a little more information about how did the two of you come together to collaborate and maybe some insights from your study.
2: I would say David is one of the brightest stars in our field. His role as editor of one of our top journals uh, is recognition of his stature. And uh, we've been friends over the years, collaborating and meeting up at conferences. And um, we were both approached by a startup organization that wanted to to do something very different, something very new uh, in the field, a company called Engage Talent. And so as they approached us, uh, for me, it was very natural to say, yes, it would be great to work uh, together with David and also to learn about this new technology.
0: Yeah, in terms of the two of us coming together to collaborate, we've been on parallel tracks for, for quite some time. We were both, I think, fortunate in graduate school to each have the opportunity to work with uh, a couple of the really sort of guiding lights and founding fathers in the in research in this area. I've been following Brook's career because he's probably the top researcher in the world now in this domain. So when we were approached by this firm that would simultaneously give us a chance to work together but also give us a chance to see some data that that would be difficult for me as an individual to collect uh, was just really exciting.
1: You guys are a great example of how resources and experts can come together and create even more value uh, for the world. So uh, thank you for being those, those kind of role models. So maybe let's get into a little bit of the study. And you used a lot of data to build your algorithms. And most of that, I think all of it was public domain about organizations and individuals. So maybe give us a little insight is, how did you gather so much data I think it was over 500,000 people.
2: We need to give credit to Christy Whitehead, who was really the brains behind that process. Many of your listeners will be familiar with the concept of web scraping, and you can use tools like Python that help uh, you to harvest publicly available information. We'll give credit to Christy for developing the database our involvement was more helping her to train the machine that looked at all of the signals. For example, when you're looking at organizational level data, if you're working with a company in the credit reporting field, if one of them has a data breach, it will likely cause the reputation of the firm to suffer. It may cause the stock price to suffer. There may be multiple articles in the press about um, this company. And so you can look at the number of articles, the valence of the articles. Are they positive? Are they negative? Uh, What's happening with the stock? And you can also compare that with their peers. So the industry overall might take a hit or just the firm within the industry. So I would call those more macro factors that you can assess. There is also data at the individual level. Uh, people post a lot of information online and you can find information, for example, uh, about start date or current employment or time with current employer. Your listeners are probably familiar with a study of LinkedIn data that looked at activity around milestones in people's lives, whether that's uh, milestone birthday or an employment anniversary, they tend to be more active in updating their profile or looking at uh, ads for new jobs. And so to the degree that we can capture that information from publicly available sources, things like milestone employment uh, anniversaries, we can develop a better intuition around who might be possibly thinking about leaving or more probably open to uh, an inquiry one of the things that brooks and
0: i tried to add to what christy and her team were doing is that there there's so much data that's available out there is that it can be helpful to provide a framework for thinking about what types of data are most likely to be useful so from a turnover perspective i think we were looking at this from a, at least three perspectives, sort of the traditional attitudinal perspective, uh, where we know that sometimes people become dissatisfied with their work, which leads them to, to think about leaving. But as Brooks alluded to earlier, uh, these models of turnover that, that he and some others have developed, such as looking at shocks, jarring events that, that cause people to rethink their employment status, uh, and embeddedness as a framework for thinking about why people stay, we use that to, to, to try to direct the data collection. So for example, Glassdoor data uh, gives updates on people's attitudes towards the workplace. Another example, a good example of a shock would be if you might be perfectly satisfied with your job, but if your company announces a merger Now, all of a sudden, you might have to think about, well, what's my place in this future company? And that could make you more open to thinking about other opportunities. Or as Brooks mentioned, from an embeddedness perspective, if you've been somewhere a long time, or if you have certain milestones that are approaching, that might affect how deeply uh, you are or are not embedded in your current job context. So trying to provide a bit of a framework around all the different types of of data that you could collect.
1: And if our audience has not read the article yet, we will be sending it out as part of uh, this podcast. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of an overview to make sure we're all on the same page. In regards to, you bring up two main reasons why people leave their jobs, turnover shocks and low job embeddedness.
2: According to our research, about 60% of turnover is precipitated by some event that causes people to reconsider the status quo. So it might be positive, it might be something like getting married or having the birth of a child. And people say, wow, I have more responsibility now. I wonder if this current job or career will enable me to do the things that I'd like to do to provide for this growing family. It could be something negative in your personal life, like the loss of a loved one, that causes you to say, wow, uh, life is short. Am I you know, being fulfilled in, in all aspects of my life? Things that happen at the organizational level, we've referenced things like mergers or acquisitions uh, or a negative um, event legally or morally or ethically, which might cause a person to reconsider. Um, but there might be positive events like an unexpected job offer um, from a company or person that you admire. Most of the time we get up on autopilot and people don't consider as they're driving into work, do I want to stay today or do I want to leave today? But it's instead these punctuating events that provide a moment of sort of clarity and, and reconsideration of what we're doing.
1: I find that so interesting because I'm not sure as a leader of a large organization and team, I thought about that. I mean, I, I know the, the second one we're going to get into, you know, how engaged are they in the organization, but now I reflect back on how many of my friends, after they had a life-changing event, decided to change jobs. So the, very interesting and something we should all be aware of.
2: Uh, Thank you. Maybe the most obvious is something like someone completing a graduate degree, right? So that would be a shocking event. And most employers would think, oh, I see this person who's just completed a master's degree, and it's in a different field than we operate. That would put, you know, their antenna up to say this person's probably at a heightened risk of leaving. I'll um, talk just a bit about embeddedness. The concept there overall is what is the degree to which a person feels embedded in or connected to an environment and we consider two dimensions one is the work environment so the fit they have with the organization and i know that a previous podcast dealt with the idea of job fit so you think about the degree to which your skills meet the demands of the job but also the degree to which your values match those of the organization. Also, the degree to which you have links within the organization, people like mentors or friends, and as well, the degree to which you would make a sacrifice if you leave. So if an organization provides daycare for your children, and you were thinking about leaving, it would be a doubly difficult decision because you would be extracting them from a positive social environment where they're connected with other children, as well, your decoupling from the organization. The second dimension of embeddedness is at the community level. And we think of that in terms of the degree to which a person fits in the environment that they live in. So it's the values of the community, as well the amenities, things like sporting or recreational opportunities, uh, affordable housing. Then We look at links in the community, the degree to which people are connected to institutions like schools or churches or service organizations, and then the sacrifices that they would make if they needed to leave the environment or community to find a new job. So things like having friends and family in the area would act as an embedding force in the community. The accumulation of all of those embedding forces for us Uh, would help to create an embeddedness score, which we have found then predicts whether people will stay or not.
1: So eye opening, and I love how you talked about you create this embeddedness score. So maybe could you walk through how you do this with an organization at a high level, just in case anybody is listening and saying, wow, I think we should do that, or we should call up, you know, David and Brooks to see if they'll help us. (laughs)
0: A good bit of my research has been working with organizations around how they onboard and socialize newcomers into the organization because so often it's the case that the highest turnover is among folks who have been there less than a year and and for whatever reason have not fully adjusted into the workplace. And using the embeddedness framework uh, is a great way to think about how to organize those early experiences in such a way as to help individuals become more embedded in the workplace and also in their community. And I think the community aspect of it is something that many organizational leaders just may not think about um, in terms of of ways that you can help people become more embedded in your own context. In terms of the measurement of it, uh, we have a well validated and developed scale that we can use to measure it with a survey. And that's probably the most common way that organizations would do it. But I think one theme of our discussion today is that uh, we're finding new ways to collect data. And there may be ways to measure embeddedness based more on behavioral and other types of existing data in addition to using a survey to ask people.
2: One of the exciting uh, advances I alluded to early in the podcast was the pulsing technology. One of the leaders in this field is called Tiny Pulse, and they're developing an expanded set of questions now grounded in the embeddedness framework that they can uh, send to employees. And through that process relatively quickly and dynamically over time, keep up on how embedded they're feeling and so it becomes a bit more of a real-time assessment than as David suggested before an annual or semi-annual survey experience that takes a month or two to get results and then to be analyzed and so we we see at this time of, of tremendous technological advance opportunities for firms that are really concerned about employee retention and engagement to um, have their finger on the pulse of what's going on
0: one way of thinking about embeddedness in terms of how connected people are uh, within the workplace and so with advances in social network analysis it's another way to measure individual communication patterns uh, to see how embedded they are in particular networks and we're seeing organizations capture those interactions in various ways. I'm in Fort Worth, Texas, and there's a firm here in Plano called Sapience, which helps firms assess their social networks via their calendar and email interactions, not looking at the content of people's emails, but just the pattern of interactions, and use that to make judgments about, among other things, how embedded people are in particular networks in the workplace.
1: And are you finding that this need for maybe it's more that community connection embeddedness is different based on different generations? Is there a need for younger generations to be more connected? Have you found anything in your research that would indicate that there's a pattern?
2: Our colleague, Peter Hong published an article about a decade ago looking at turnover risk among uh, employees of the Fortune 500. And he found that the time enroll role was a much better predictor than age uh, was of turnover propensity. But we do know that the uh, turnover rate among young people is elevated over that of older people. Of course, it's correlated often with their length of time in the organization. Um, I would say also, as you're kind of referencing, for example, the millennial generation, there's quite a bit of chatter in the popular press about how they're different and their needs are different. But the uh, academic research to date has not demonstrated large differences attributable to the generation so much as the age cohort.
1: Yeah, I've interviewed different guests. Uh, that seems to be the theme. There's not a huge amount of differentiation. Sometimes they're a little more vocal, but people want to be treated fairly. People want to be connected in general. So. We've been talking about this big data, and your work is showing that organizations that use big data can really predict who's going to leave or help them predict. So how do you see companies integrating that information into their HR systems and processes?
0: I think there's a couple of different ways to think about this. In some ways, I think that the easy part of integrating it is collecting the data uh, and and developing uh, some methods for analyzing that data. I think those are things that, whether you have the expertise in-house uh, or whether you, you go externally, I, I think you can find people to help you do that. Perhaps the more challenging part is then figuring out exactly what to do with that data once you have it and once you have it analyzed. Companies right now, many of them are experimenting with, with developing uh, methods or algorithms to help them predict who might be a higher flight risk, who might be at a higher uh, likelihood of leaving, but then that raises the question, if you communicate that information to the manager, I'm not sure we have really strong answers to, okay, what should I do with that information now? Should I talk with the employee? Uh, should I change something about the employee's uh, working conditions? Uh, should I just monitor the situation? So I think that, that that for now remains the more challenging issue.
1: And what do you see companies doing? Is a variety of all of those or is there a recommendation you would give a, an organization if they've identified this group of people being high flight risk?
0: I think it likely depends a bit on the context, Um, but I think what you want to be cautious about doing is it would be pretty common for this to be communicated in just sort of a green-yellow-red type of framework, right, where green suggests somebody is uh, low likelihood of leaving and yellow is maybe a moderate and red suggests, hey, this person, based on our data, looks like they're a serious flight risk a thoughtful manager would need to be able to have some understanding of what is going into this prediction and why is this individual being identified as a flight risk in order to help them decide how to proceed.
2: The organizations that are sort of at the front of this investment and development are the ones that have large amounts of hiring in a given year where the roles have high impact. So think uh, investment banks and major consultancies, um, you also see the integration of the um, hiring and selection data. For example, a company called HireView uses online interview uh, diagnostics that can help organizations choose who to select. Most of the first round interviews on campus now are not occurring with a recruiter in a room. They're actually happening In a dorm room, someone connected to a computer and someone sitting back in a bank in New York, complemented by technology that's assessing their enthusiasm, their pitch and rate of voice, facial expressions. So it's a really um, sort of interesting time to be sitting close to HRIS systems, looking at the inputs coming in, and then, as David says, actually sort of figuring out then, what do you do with that information?
1: Can companies do an even better job of predicting turnover by using their internal data? And if yes, what suggestions do you have?
0: I think the answer to that is definitely yes. If you, if you look at the, the research uh, that Brooks and I did for the HBR article, it originated from a bit of an external perspective. So from a recruiting perspective, are, are there ways to use big data to tell whether employees, for example, in a certain industry or a certain geography or even a certain organization uh, are likely to be open to receiving a recruiting message based on on some of the, the big publicly available data that we have talked about? I think that if you look internally within an organization and turn the lens that way, if you think about the scope and types of data that organizations have available uh, from things that Brooks referred to earlier, like milestones, other types of of data that would be in, in any HR information system, like time since last promotion, for example, couple that with things like engagement survey data, or the pulse survey data that Brooks was talking about, marry that with some of the perhaps social network data uh, that I was describing. If you start looking at all those different sources of data that you have available, then you could potentially build some really powerful models about uh, about your employees.
1: So what do you say to the talent champions who are just struggling to whet their organization's appetites to use more data-driven to help them make decisions?
2: Well, you have to get started. Uh, A lot of people might be intimidated by big data. What is big data? Well, the reality is that we are constantly leaving signals um, through email, through text, another medium. And we've never really aggregated all of that information in the past, but organizations have that ability now. And they probably won't get it right, right out of the gate. And so the argument that I would make as a talent champion within an organization to my executive team is that we need to get started and we'll see what we can do in terms of predicting who's going to stay and who's going to leave Um, and over time refine our models. But I think it's, it's high time to get started.
1: Great advice. And we tend to talk about this in our our field is we've got to at least start to crawl before you can run because sometimes we benchmark with these other companies that are at this high level and you go, gosh, I can't even get there. But at least just starting with a few things and looking at the information that you have, I think is great advice to our audience. So I love to ask this question because everybody wants to continue to learn and grow, and people have such fascinating stories, is if you could each tell us about one person that's had the greatest impact on your professional life and why you wouldn't be where you are today without that person's influence.
0: So I referred to my advisor from my doctoral program earlier. Uh, His name is Roger Griffith, and he's a recently retired uh, professor of management and he obviously had a great impact on, uh, on my professional life, but I'm going to mention that in two ways. One is the way that you might expect and that he was just a great role model for how to be a productive and successful scholarly academic, which is something that uh, that we all, I think, need those, those mentors and role models. But the other thing that, that he did for me was at the same time, he was role modeling for me. Uh, how to successfully balance professional and personal life. Many people in, uh, in our profession are so focused on their professional accomplishments that it's easy to, to, to be a workaholic. And uh, he always emphasized uh, the importance of family and, in fact, generally chose his professional jobs based on locations that were where his family was headed. Uh, as opposed to the other way around. And so I just always appreciated from him role modeling, how to be a successful academic while also keeping things in the right perspective.
2: Similar to David, uh, my advisors have had the most impact on me uh, in terms of my professional life. I was very fortunate to work with Terry Mitchell and Tom Lee at the University of Washington, um, two of the outstanding scholars in the field of employee engagement, employee retention. And interestingly, also very good friends with Roger, David's advisor. And so um, like David, I learned both professionally from them. I was challenged by them and inspired to um, do the types of things that they have done. Um, But as well, again, wonderful role models for me and my personal life and uh, focus on family first,
1: I love that, that balance of personal and work, um, I think is so critical for everybody. So what final piece of advice do you have for our talent champions?
2: Maybe I can just uh, put something out there, which is to read broadly, as you stated earlier in the podcast, a lot of people are so actively engaged firefighting, that it's difficult for them to sit back and be strategic. But I find that that's really important for leaders to be effective is they need to periodically step back. And I would say when they step back, read broadly, plant a variety of seeds in your sort of mental field, and then pursue those that start to sprout and nurture them with some water and some sunlight. Give them a little bit of time and a little bit of energy. If you want things to be different in the future, you have to be willing to do different things now and living an intentional life, whether that's personal or professional, by taking time to step back and be strategic in your efforts is really fundamental to leading effectively and to making a difference.
0: I will echo the uh, the sense of being very thoughtful in terms of going down this path and while the use of data in all its various forms is definitely the future, I would encourage uh, the talent champions to think carefully about the types of data they're collecting and the uses to which they're putting it from an ethical perspective. Uh, Because we are in a situation where we can collect so much data about our employees and about their movements and about their interactions and about who they interact with and how they interact with other people and tie it to organizational records that include information about their compensation and their health and other, other issues related to that um, that I think we, we just need to be really thoughtful in the way that we're using these data.
1: Excellent points. Was there anything that I didn't ask that I should have or additional information that you think would be pertinent to share?
2: I think that there are great opportunities for them in the academic journals to read. You don't have to have a PhD to be able to understand the abstracts and to capture the main messages, particularly as they're distilled in the discussion section at the end of the articles. You can kind of skip over the statistics, but if you want to see, I think, where the world is headed, you might spend a little bit of time in journals, not just Harvard Business Review, which is a fine summary or digest. There are other practitioner outlets like Organizational Dynamics or Business Horizons uh, or Sloan Management Review or California Management Review, where uh, people can get closer to the cutting edge of research um, without uh, getting... uh, stunned by the statistics
0: and following up on that i'll make a, a shameless plug i suppose but uh, along with roger griffith and peter hahm who's another leading scholar that brooks referred to earlier uh, the we just published uh, a book called employee retention and turnover why employees stay or leave which is a summary of the academic research in this area to date
1: Wonderful. And we will make sure we get that link to the book out to all of our listeners. And I love your points about academics and practitioners coming together. I think it's such a winning combination. And to see academic professors and people at your level reaching out and working with organizations just helps to uh, show these talent champions that there are some great resources out there that they should be tapping into. So thank you for sharing uh, that information. I feel like we've just scratched the surface on so many fascinating and helpful topics and information. How can our listeners continue to learn more or get in touch with you?
0: Well, my Twitter is at DGA underscore talent prof. So that That would be one way, and people would be welcome to reach out to me at david.allen at tcu.edu.
2: And because I'm in Washington, D.C., I've sworn off Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) However, uh, if people want to reach out, I am at Brooks.holtham at georgetown.edu.
1: And both of you are on LinkedIn as well. I know a lot of our listeners uh, connect with people on LinkedIn. Is that accurate?
0: Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been so exciting to hear what you're working on and the impact that you've made and that you are making and will continue to make. And I really hope our paths cross again.
2: Very good. Thank you, Diana.
0: Thank you so much for having us on.
1: Here's a recap of the key takeaways from today's episode. The study of retention and turnover is an exciting inflection point because of the growing ability to gather data throughout the employee's life cycle. If you're in HR, this is your opportunity to look beyond the standard exit interview and pull in many other data points, both external and internal. According to research, about 60% of turnover is preceded by a major event, either in the employee's personal life or at the organizational level. Many of these events can be predicted, a family change, like marriage or the birth of a child, completing a graduate degree, or a merger or acquisition in the organization. The concept of embeddedness, or how connected an employee is in the work environment, comes to play when one of these big events occurs. In brief, the higher a person's embeddedness score, the greater the likelihood he or she will stay in the job throughout the transition. It turns out that tenure is a much stronger predictor of retention than age or generation. Those of you who are involved in onboarding programs are meeting people at the highest risk of leaving as that first year on the job tends to be a tenuous time. Real-time assessments of embeddedness are particularly important for this group. Collecting and analyzing data about retention and turnover is important, but it's equally critical to develop strategies for acting on the findings. If your analysis identifies a flight risk, what do you expect the manager to do with that information? Making good use of data requires a thoughtful and nuanced approach. Those of you whose HR organizations aren't embracing big data need to start somewhere, even if it's a small effort. So get started, see what you can learn, and refine your models over time. And finally, take time to step back from your day-to-day and read broadly. There are so many resources out there, including the academic journals mentioned that we'll link on our website. Stay engaged and look for opportunities to learn about new fields, because you never know what seeds are going to sprout in your mind and lead you down a new path. This wraps up our year here at Talent Champions, wishing you and your family a wonderful holiday. We'll be back in January with an episode you won't want to miss. Our guest is a world-renowned executive search and talent expert. She'll be sharing some great insights and advice that everyone can benefit from as we start the new year. Please subscribe in your podcast player or visit our website, talent-champions.com to join our email list and be among the first to know when new episodes are released.
0: Thanks for listening to Talent Champions with Diana Thomas. For more information about today's show, please visit
2: talent-champions.com.